So today we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is God's word. Please have a seat. Thanks, Howard. Start with a prayer before we jump into the passage this morning. And uh, what we'll do this morning is I want to give you an opportunity to pray. There might be some things in your life that you would like to take a little bit of time since we're here and we've got a few minutes to uh, pray and seek the Lord and ask for his help. There may be things you know about that are going on in other folks' uh, lives as well. You can, of course, be remembering uh, Mike and uh, Happy Mansfield and uh, Pastor Seth is home, not feeling very well this morning. And a lot of people, and if, if you're ever wondering, well, gee, who could I pray for? Uh, we happen to put out in the lobby every week a prayer sheet. So if you're ever wondering, uh, I have run out of things to pray for. I'm just out. I'm totally out. Uh, we have a list and things uh, you can be praying for. So I'll, I'll begin with a brief prayer and then I'm going to be quiet for a little while and you can just uh, pray in your own heart and mind where you sit for a minute or two and then I'll close before uh, we begin our message. So let's pray. God, we thank you that as your people come together, we uh, reflect the reality that we need you and we depend on you. So as we come before you with the uh, things in our lives that we are asking you to provide, uh, we are grateful that because of Jesus, you hear us and respond. So God, hear the prayers of your people as we come before you. Father, we are grateful that you hear us, not because we deserve it, but because our Savior Jesus told us to come before you in prayer because of your grace and mercy displayed through his sacrifice on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And so, God, we are grateful that you hear us, that you know the longings of our hearts, the difficulties we face, as well as the joys and blessings you've brought. And we pray, God, that you would give us faith to believe and to rest in you as we turn over to you those things in our lives uh, that we need. God, we pray as we're in your word here for a few minutes this morning, you would give us hearts that are willing to confront uh, the realities of our disobedience and disbelief and to turn to you for ongoing uh, um, forgiveness and grace that you might make us more like your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just two verses today. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. But I want to begin uh, by reading uh, a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 2, just by way of introduction, to kind of introduce sort of the idea that I think we find in these, these two brief verses in, Hebrew, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4. So uh, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read it until I feel like stopping. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the law to Moses, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
The command and the challenge is in that first verse of Hebrews chapter 2. Pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And what he's talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying we need to pay attention so we don't drift. So the, one of the principles you can draw from that verse in Hebrews chapter 2 is that drifting is normal. So normal is drifting, and it, it requires intentional effort to not drift. So the default position of the human heart when it comes to the gospel is to drift away from it, and it requires some intentional purpose, some, some sort of awareness, and say, I don't want to drift. Because we tend to think people drift like they choose to drift, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, actually, if left to our own devices, we drift away from the gospel, and it requires a, an awareness and some intentionality, some purposefulness to not drift. And if you're, of course, he's using a nautical term there, to, to drifting, obviously. It's a, a ship on the water, and a ship without any air and its wind in its sails or with no power to its uh, propulsion system is going to just be at the whims of the wind and, and the current. So to avoid drifting in sea, what sailors, of course, do is they find visual markers, whether they be uh, stars or whether they be landmarks. In order to make sure the ship is properly positioned, Sailors will identify visual markers and say, well, since I can see that position and that position, usually more than one marker is better, I therefore know that my position is correct and I haven't drifted away from my intended location. And so what sailors do is they find these visual markers. And what I'm going to suggest today is the, the text here provides us a couple of visual markers for us to determine have we drifted from the gospel. And we can assess, we can look at these two visual markers and sort of see where we're, where we're at in terms of the gospel. Are we drifting or are we in a, in a right position? And so the title of the message today is Drifting from the Gospel. And I'm gonna give you the two visual markers, one in each of the verses. So drifting from the gospel, the first marker is this. Drifting from the gospel changes how we see others. So one of the first visual marker in terms of drifting from the gospel is we can look at how we see people around us, especially in the body of Christ, and when we look at how the Bible calls us to see others, we can compare it with how we actually see others, and that will determine if we have drifted from the gospel. Now, it's normal to look at others in a particular way, and the best way to think about it, this is an, an athletic tournament. So if, if there is an athletic tournament, my understanding this weekend, there was a couple of tournaments uh, that the men participated in. There was a quilting tournament, uh, and a couple of guys just quilted like, no, I'm kidding, there was no quilting tournament, and that's probably an appropriate joke. Uh, I think there was a cornhole uh, tournament, is that right? Is, was there a victor? Are the winners here? Who won, the, who, won, who won the cornhole tournament, Howard? No, that was uh, Pickleball. Oh, Pickleball champions. Good for you. Yeah, but you guys won a PE game. That's uh, <laughs> swinging for the fences. Yeah, full ride scholarship to Texas Tech Pickleball. So in a tournament, in an athletic tournament, before the tournament starts, there's a bracket, single elimination tournament, and the teams are put on the, on the end, and, and you, you win, you keep going. And what they generally do is they seed those teams. They evaluate the good teams from the not good teams. So the, the teams that are seeded are really good, usually play the worst teams, because the goal is when you get to the championship game that the two best teams are playing one another. And it's not a terrible game, a good team and a terrible team. So the, the teams are seeded. They look at uh, how they've played in the past and, and the kinds of players that are on a team. So the teams are evaluated, and we're familiar with this. This is not a big deal. One, one team is better than the other team, and, and this is how, it's, how we evaluate them. In the gospel, though, we drift from the gospel when we forget the truth of the gospel, and we evaluate others around us either higher than ourselves or lower than ourselves. We for, we're gospel forgetful when we put some people on a pedestal or when we look down on others. 
And that's what was happening in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 is the people of the church of Corinth were evaluating some people as below them and some people as above them. In particular, the, the person they were putting up on the pedestal is a guy named Apollos. He was an excellent speaker, trained in, in brilliant rhetoric, and he was a fantastic speaker. I've said this many times. He could read the phone book and people would get saved. <laughs> and, uh, and again, the young people say, the what? <laughs> phone book. Watch Back to the Future. They've got one in there. And they also looked down on Paul. So they looked up to Apollos, and they looked down on Paul. And that reveals they've drifted from the gospel because they put some people, Apollos in this case, up on a pedestal, and they've put other people below them, in this case, Paul. Let me read verse six, and we're gonna look at really a, two or three primary terms and words in here to help us understand what he's saying. Verse six, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Talking about everything that's come before that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So the first term there, I have applied these things. What he's doing is saying, I have taken the truth of the gospel and I'm trying to let you see how it shows up in your context, in your church, in your lives. And he's described a number of things. He's told them that, that the Apostle Paul planted the seed of the gospel. He founded the church. He preached the gospel and non-believers came to salvation. And then also, Apollos came in later and these believers, Apollos trained them and taught them the good news of the gospel and helped them understand how to apply it in their lives. So, so Peter said, or Paul says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it and who caused it to grow? Do you remember? God caused it to grow. And so what he did is he took the gospel and he said, yes, I had a role. I shared the gospel with you. And yes, Apollos had a role. He taught you how to apply the truth of the gospel in your Christian life. But where did the growth come from? The growth, according to the gospel, comes from the Lord. So he's saying, I'm applying these things to you. And then he also applied it to them in this way. He said, look, the foundation of the church is the gospel, and you want to build on the church with Precious stones, gold and silver and precious stones, not worthless things like wood, hay, and stubble. And he says the, the permanent things is the truth of the gospel applied to your own heart and others, whereas the worthless things are when we pursue our own agendas in selfishness. So Paul is saying, I have applied the gospel to your particular church. He's pulled back the curtain on how things work in a church. Some people plant, some people water. There's lots of different ways in which people serve in the church, but it's the gospel through the power of God that does the work. And so what he's saying is, it is inappropriate for you to put Apollos up on a pedestal. It's also inappropriate for you to look down on the Apostle Paul. That's the application of the gospel. We shouldn't be looking up or down to just mere people. We drift from the gospel when we put people up on a pedestal or we look down on them. We need to be aware of this because when we think about our own hearts in relation to the people around us, most of us will agree we shouldn't look down on others. Do we agree with this? Yeah, we learned this on Sesame Street. This is a kindergarten thing. This is, you shouldn't look down on others. Now, we do look down on others. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that people do. This is something you have to actually uh, consciously try not to do because we, we're always assessing the people around us. We shouldn't look down on others. And when we do, somebody does something, we sort of kind of judge them in our heart. And we, we might even, oh, I shouldn't think that. that. You know, we might even sort of self-correct, right? And so we sort of know this instinctually. But we don't necessarily feel the same way about looking up to people. We, we look up to others, and we actually think that's, there's something noble about that. Well, no, I should, I should look up to these particular people. And Paul is saying those two things are the same in the gospel. That, that there is no looking up to others. There's no looking up to Apollos. There's no looking down on Paul. The gospel says uh, we should see one another in the same way. And there's no exalting some and demoting others. And it's the same error. We know we're drifting from the gospel if we hold any other mere person up in the air, that we look up to them in a way that we should only look 
to our Savior Jesus. And so he's applying this to them. He's trying to, applying the gospel to them, saying, you've drifted from the gospel because of the way you view people. You look down on some and you look up to others, and that shouldn't be how we look at others. Look at what else he says here in verse six. He said, that you might not go beyond what is written. And what is he talking about there? He's talking about the gospel. So I thought this morning I would read it to you. He's gonna give it to them in detail. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse one. 1 Corinthians 15 might be, I don't know if I, yeah, I'm gonna go for it. Might be the most important chapter in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I'm, I'm deciding because I didn't think this through before, so maybe to open discussion in your own mind. Outside of the narratives of the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it might be the most important chapter in the New Testament. Uh, but maybe I'm going to give the slight edge to the, the Passion Week narratives in the gospel. I don't know, so we're chewing on that. And I can tell you guys are very intrigued by this. <laughs> so let's read it. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just going to read it. Verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. This is what is written. This is the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died and three days later he was raised and the gospel is not a fairy tale faith. The gospel is something we believe that has witnesses to it. Paul says here to the Corinthian believers, Jesus died and was rose, rose again from the dead. If you wonder, there's 500 people I can tell you right now you can go ask. Because he says most of them are still alive. If you want to look them up and go travel and see them, that will tell you what they saw with their own eyes. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an evidence-based faith. We believe it because there were witnesses to it. And this is the gospel. The gospel says that we receive forgiveness of sins by his grace and his grace alone. Paul even attests to the fact that he doesn't deserve to have the gospel preached to him. He persecuted the church. But he says, be that as it may, his grace is applied to me. So this gospel, that which is written, is the standard by which Paul is going to evaluate all endeavors, whether or not they're worthwhile, and the way in which he's going to evaluate the way, how he interacts with the people around him. Why is that? The gospel is the story of Jesus, God, the creator, who died for people who wanted him dead. And died for people who wanted him dead who are responsible for creating the environment where his death was necessary. And so this gospel, when we look at Jesus, the creator, he is the one for whom all things were made. If there is something that is, it was made by him, and it was made with the sole purpose of being for him. Amen. And so therefore, he comes and he dies for us. And so Paul says, I'm going to evaluate all ways in which people interact with people the way he interact, interacted with people. He, he chose to die for people who didn't deserve it, and who wouldn't want it if he 
if he didn't work in their hearts. That's the way in which the Savior interacts with us. And so when he looks at Jesus, he says, I'm going to evaluate based on the standard of the gospel, Jesus' activity, whether or not an activity is worthwhile. And I'm going to evaluate the manner in which I interact with others based on how Jesus interacts with others. Who does Jesus put up on a pedestal? Only the Father. Who does Jesus look down on? No one. He died for everyone that we might respond by faith. And so Paul's implication of the gospel among the Corinthian believers is why are you looking up to anyone other than God? And why are you looking down on anyone if God would not do so? He would die for them. And so this is why he's saying it. He's saying we're drifting from the gospel. This isn't a doctrinal issue. Of course, we could get the gospel wrong. That is a doctrinal issue. His issue with the Corinthian believers is your behavior is not consistent with how your Savior behaves. He treats people differently than you. And when you look at how you're treating people, you can see you've drifted from the gospel. Once again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 if you don't mind. This is what he says. He applies it pretty straightforwardly. Don't go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. This is pride. This is looking down on others because they don't measure up to your standard of behavior and performance and looking up to others because you think they've done something that is worth being uh, glorified and exalted. And this is going beyond the gospel. The gospel doesn't provide a means for a hierarchy in the body of believers. There isn't a place in the gospel for trying to get the, to the next level of gospel awesome. There is saved in Christ or not saved in Christ. It is arrogant to think yourself better than someone else. It is arrogant to think someone else is better than you. The gospel leaves no room for arrogance in the body of Christ. And it is just as arrogant to look down on others as it is to look up to others. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we say Jesus is the exalted Lord. The rest of us, everything was granted to us by his grace. And he is saying you have drifted from the gospel because you've created a hierarchy in the body of believers. And what he is suggesting to us is this is a normal thing to do. We like to look up to others. We like to, to, to put people up on a pedestal. Now, why is it that we like to put people up on a pedestal? Uh, because you would think, well, as, as arrogant people, not you guys, um, you know, we wouldn't want to put anybody up on a pedestal because if you put somebody up on a pedestal, it means somebody's above you. But actually, we love it. We love putting people up on a pedestal. It's absolutely uh, the case. And you know, this, I don't even know that I have to prove it's the case, but we, uh, we, all, we love putting people up on a on a pedestal. We have our favorite teachers, our uh, favorite uh, sports athletes, our uh, favorite politicians. <laughs> I don't, it is, but we look up, and, and, and you can tell when you, when you put somebody up above somebody else, uh, and then somebody else doesn't like your, uh, your exalted person. And then, and then they say something negative about the person you've exalted. And, and what's the response? Oh, they're stupid. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to be polite. Especially, we're just, I'm just getting ready for 2024. Politics is on. And uh, we got our person, and they don't like them, and so therefore, oh, they don't go to the right websites. They don't listen to the right uh, media. They don't, yada, yada, yada. And, and so therefore, to keep my person up here, what do I have to do? You're an idiot. We like exalting people because if you can be exalted, that provides us the opportunity to be over somebody else. See, we don't want to be top dog. We just want to know we're over most of the people. And if somebody can't be exalted, then we can't be. We like the idea that there is a, a something to aspire to, a hierarchy where somebody can be above us because it means I can look down on others. But if I remove by the gospel, which I ought to be to do, I say, no, there is no exalting. There is only Jesus and then those who received his grace. That means I don't get to be exalted either. 
And that bothers us because we look at some of the people around us and we say, I'm sorry, I'm just being honest, but I'm better than that guy. And Jesus says, actually, no. The gospel says you're not. But I can give you objective reasons why I'm better than, than that guy is. No, you can't. The gospel says without Jesus, you're in the same boat, dead in your trespasses and sins. And this is a critically important understanding that, this, that our, our normal drift is going to be to creating a hierarchy in how we see others. And Paul is saying the gospel properly applied says there is no preference of others. We fit together in the body of Christ through humble service where we serve Christ by serving one another. We, we drift from that when we fit in the body of Christ because we establish where we fit on the org chart. Where I fit here because I matter. And they, maybe that guy will someday matter, but right now he doesn't. And the Bible doesn't allow for that. The Bible just simply says the, the structure by which we operate together is humble service to one another, to people who don't deserve it and don't appreciate it, because that's what Jesus did. Corinthian, the Corinthian church had missed it, and if we're honest, we tend to miss it as well. Drifting from the gospel. When we drift from the gospel, it changes how we see others. We stop seeing others, the people around us as fellow uh, people who need Christ's grace and we start creating uh, hierarchies and structure and that's a drift from the gospel. Drifting from the gospel doesn't just change how we view others, it also changes how we see what God has done for us. So that's verse seven. Drifting from the gospel changes how we see God's work. Let me read verse seven again. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You could imagine somebody being rescued. Maybe they get lost in the woods. And uh, they do the smart thing. What's the smart thing to do when you get lost in the woods? Sit down. I've said this before. I think I even said it in a sermon once. 100% of people lost in the woods are found in a stationary position. Some because they chose to, others because they walked around until they were too exhausted to walk around anymore and they passed out. So you may as well just sit down and let them find you, right? So you can imagine somebody out in the woods, they get lost, what are you gonna do? So they sit down, search and rescue shows up and they find them. So then they're interviewing the person who got rescued on the news. I said, what, what happened? He said, well, I don't want to brag, but this search and rescue never could have found me if I hadn't have got lost. <laughs> so I feel like maybe an award, maybe a, a pin, best rescuee ever, something, something. Well, it seems ridiculous. That's why you're laughing. That's the dumbest thing. That's stupid. Why would the, the, the person being rescued doesn't get any credit? I mean, if anything, they should, they should get a bill for, for all these people having to come out and find them. When we drift from the gospel, we think we've added something to our spiritual life. We think as the rescuee, we participated in some way that's material. We think it's because we have done something because we have accomplished something in our life, in our walk with the Lord, that therefore, in our relationship with God, we have some sense of status, and maybe even in the body of Christ, we have some sense of status, because we've done something. That's a drift from the gospel. I change how I see God's work in my life, and instead of God's work, it's well, it's my work. I've, I've contributed something. Look at it. Verse 7. This is great. This is my favorite part of this passage. Um, I'm even getting emotional. Better what I know. No, I'm not getting it. For who sees anything different in you? Paul asked them this question. Who sees anything different in you? So here's what's going. Here's what Paul is doing here. The, the, the Corinthian believers are bragging on Apollos. Oh, Apollos. He's, wow, he's amazing. Great teacher. He never says, um. He never gets a, he never gets a reference wrong when he's cross-referencing the Old Testament. And, and he uses interesting illustrations. And, and he's obviously trained in intellectual rhetoric. Man, we, we love Apollos. Man, he is 
Man, he is great. And so what Paul is saying, he said, who sees anything different than you? Paul says, now, Corinthian believers, I just want just quick check, I'm just checking in here. Who's bragging about you? Oh, no one. No one's bragging about you. So what does this mean? The Corinthians didn't have a reputation for brilliance. They didn't have a reputation. So, so they have decided they're the experts on who's the best teacher in the world. And Paul is saying, who says you're an expert in that? Who says you know what ought to be about who is something, someone that matters? He's, he's in a very uh, sharp way saying, you have no idea what you're talking about, and if you did know you were talking about, people would be saying, well, we ought to listen to the Corinthian believers. They really know what ought to be, but nobody was saying this. They're self-appointed experts, and, and you've had this happen before. You've called up a buddy of yours and say, hey, I'm, I'm taking my wife out for dinner. Where do you recommend I go? And he goes, oh, oh, let me tell you. As a person who's been around, you ought to go to this place. And then you go there and you're like, this place is trash. This is terrible. Maybe you just have different tastes than your buddy, but what you really decide is my buddy has no idea what he's talking about. However, my buddy thinks he knows what he's talking about. And that's the worst. That's the Corinthian believers. They have decided they are the best ones to evaluate who matters in the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, you're self-appointed experts, and by the way, even from a biblical perspective, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're self-appointed experts on something that you watched a couple of YouTube videos about. Corinthians brag on, on, on Apollos. They're, they assume they must be experts on that which is noteworthy, and Paul is saying, no one is saying the Corinthian church is noteworthy. Because you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're self-appointed. What this means is they weren't looking to establish a meaningful way of evaluating gospel ministry. They wanted to serve their own agenda. They wanted to serve their own desires, which was to establish a pecking order of who's awesome and who's not awesome. And this is going to show up even later in the book of 1 Corinthians when we see they weren't even fellowshipping together at meals well. Some people were eating all the food and others were left to go hungry. So Paul says here, you're drifting from the gospel. You have missed how, you don't even understand how God works anymore. You've decided you know how to evaluate how God works and that's completely has missed the gospel. Well, let's understand how God works. What did you earn, he might ask, and I'm gonna read Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. I'm gonna read 2 verse 14, so a relatively long section. And uh, I'll try to read it slow enough that you can pick up the key ideas here because we're not gonna spend a ton of time delving into it. But Ephesians chapter one, maybe just write this down to go back and reread Ephesians one, the whole, the whole chapter. It tells us how God works. And it's really important. Maybe do this as I'm reading through it. Look at who's doing all the things that need to be done. As we're going through Ephesians 1, there's a lot of doing being done, and pay attention to who's doing the done <laughs> things. Hey, what, you want Apollos? Whatever, all right. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of things being done in that passage. You see that? There's a whole bunch. How much did you do? The breathing, <laughs> I guess. I'll give you that. He did all the things. And he started doing all of the things before the creation of the world. He said, why did I get saved? Because Jesus decided I was going to get saved. How do I know I'm going to get to heaven? He says right there because I can make sure I'm good enough until I die? No, what does he say? He said, no, he can't trust you with that job. He seals you with the promised Holy Spirit. He can't trust you to keep your salvation. You'll mess it up. He, can't, he does all the doing. He is, he is the one carrying out all the things. And then we say, I memorized Romans 3.23. I'm pretty close to Jesus now. I mean, that's what it is. He does all of the work. And then we do a little thing as an act of worship and we feel like, look at me go. And then we see somebody else do something and we put them up on a pedestal. And, and we think, well, I don't have to be as good as that person, but I can be better than them and I've just created a hierarchy. And Jesus says, none of you are doing anything that, that counts. I'm the one doing all the work. There is no hierarchy. What did you learn? Nothing. Everything you have in Christ was given to you by Jesus. God has given us all the things. That's why it's called an inheritance, not an earnedance. I just made that word up, I know. <laughs> Since everything is given, pride is not just wrong, it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. I mean, isn't it? I mean, that we would be proud when Jesus did all the things. It's not just wrong, it is wrong for us to take some kind of pride that we have accomplished something. It, it's just silly, because Jesus did all the things and he's been doing it since before the creation of the world. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter four, if you don't mind. He says it this way at the end of verse seven. If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the two ways we drift from the gospel, the first one is how we change it, how we, it changes how we see others. And we create these structures where we're better than some and others are better than us. He says we've drifted from the gospel. The second thing that has, shows us we have drifted from the gospel, we change how we see God's work. How do we determine that's happening when we're boasting about things that we should not be boasting about? When we fail to recognize God is the one who has done everything in our life. The gospel as a gift to us from our Savior should motivate us into humble service the way our Savior served. We want to look good because we did something that matters, but really we should say our Savior did something that was so humiliating, I should follow him in that regard and pursue him in humble service. Last passage we're going to look at, and then we're going to wrap it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. This is how this is applied and how God was working in the midst of the Corinthians. In the Corinthian church, they were really excited about miraculous spiritual gifts. Now, all spiritual gifts are miraculous. Uh, if you have the gift of service, that's a miracle. We, we act like some of the spiritual gifts are miraculous and others aren't. But the reality is all the spiritual gifts that God would use his spirit to motivate us using our particular bents and interests to serve his church, that's a miracle. All right, but some of the gifts just have a little bit more, I don't know, sparkle, a little pop to them. And one of the ones the Corinthians were really excited about was the speaking in tongues. Man, that really turned their crank. They got really excited about it. Speaking in tongues is not too complicated. A person gets up, and speaks, like for example, I'm speaking English. I'm not good at it, but we all agree it is in fact English of a kind. And then what would happen is the people out there might hear a different language. Maybe if they're uh, Spanish, maybe they would hear something Spanish. And so they're speaking in tongues. They got really excited about the fact that these miraculous uh, things were happening in their midst. And what they decided was, since I am, by God's grace, doing something that's really 
interesting, speaking in tongues, well, guess what? That means I'm interesting. That means I'm awesome. And so the Apostle Paul here is gonna correct them and their view of themselves because of how they saw God working. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? See what I'm saying? So somebody gets up and speaks in tongues, and everybody in the church is going, anybody know, have any idea what, what he is saying? Everybody's like, no, we have no idea. So who's benefiting? Just the person speaking. But the person speaking wants everybody to be impressed. I'm speaking in a tongue, and everybody's going, does anybody know what Bill is saying? I mean, Bill, sit down. Nobody knows what you're saying. Is there an interpreter? No interpreter. They're all sick this week. Ah. Bill, what are you saying? Sounds nice. We have no idea what you're saying. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. See, the gospel application of the spiritual gift is not what I am doing. The gospel application of a spiritual gift of any kind is how am I serving others? That's the gospel, remember? Humble service to others. Verse 18, Paul says this, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He said, look, I would rather speak five words that encourages another person's heart. Jesus loves you no matter what. Then to speak 10,000 words in a tongue and have you merely impressed with me. The Corinthian believers had reversed that. We want people impressed with us. We're not overly concerned if anybody is served. And so therefore, Paul is saying you're drifting from the gospel because you've missed the, the point. The point is to humbly serve others the way Jesus served. So how do we sort of assess if this is going on? I'll give you a couple of tips, a couple of ways to assess if we're drifting. And again, I'm sort of giving you my, my viewpoint. You can disagree with, with me if you want. I don't mind. Uh, but my, my viewpoint is drift is normal. You have to be on purpose to not drift. One thing we might look at in our own hearts is when we think about God and his work, we might become at, unsatisfied with the glory of God's ordinary things. God's ordinary things. I mean, it, it's not complicated. The Christian life is hard because we live not at home. We live in the enemy's territory, uh, right? Is the Christian life hard? Anybody else? Yeah, it's not easy, right? But I would say this, it's not complicated. Know God through his word. Trust him through prayer. Encourage one another with the, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Get to know one another, serve one another, humble service to each other. It's not complicated, but at a certain point, sometimes we think of the ordinary stuff of, the, of God in his gospel. Know his word, pray, fellowship with others, seek to meet needs when we have opportunity. We think, you know, there must be, there must be more than this. There must be. We, we get a little bit unsatisfied with the ordinary things of God's work in our life. We want more. We want something that matters in, in our own minds. And so what, what people have typically done throughout history when they get bored with the ordinary stuff of God is what we do is we create religious systems where some people get magnified and other people get humiliated and then we get to spend all of our time because it's so much more fun to compete with other, one another to see who can be the most religious. Doesn't that sound like fun? What are you doing this weekend? It's a little religion competition. But that's what we've been doing through all of human history. We get bored with the ordinary stuff of God. Loving one another, loving God, knowing him in his words, seeking him through prayer, humbly serving others in ordinary ways. And so we say, there's gotta be more than this. Let's create a competition. Let's create ranks. Let's see who can be better than others. And then when others aren't so good, let's be sure to crush them. And that's what people do. And let's say, in this church, I would hope, we say, no, let's be good with the ordinary stuff of God. Seek him in his word. 
love one another through humble service and trust God in prayer. All right, a couple of things and we'll close. First Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. Drifting from the gospel changes how we see others and it changes how we see God's work. First question, what makes a good Christian? I mean, I'm, you know, I've just got done telling you not to evaluate others. Now I'm asking, how do you evaluate others? <laughs> well, it's on purpose because we all do it. And, and uh, so here's a couple of ways we tend to evaluate Christians. We evaluate each other on our values. I didn't, now, I'm not necessarily saying... Uh, biblical ethics, values, things that you think are important. There are some things in your life that you think are important and you're a Christian and when other Christians don't think those things are important, you don't think they're as good of a Christian. I like my lawn mowed. I think it, I like the edges sort of squared off. Anybody kind of a squared off edge guy? I mean, just kind of go out. It doesn't take you do it every week. It doesn't take that long, right? Come on. Guess what? Not everybody has a value of their lawn being mowed and squared off. Turns out, and turns out some of them live in my neighborhood. <laughs> right? And so, so I even can kind of get biblical about it. I say, you know, there's a proverb, you know, a little bit of folding of the hands and the, the rafters sag. <laughs> and look at his yard. That's a lazy bum. I'm, I'm sure he doesn't go to church. Because anybody who goes to church would square off his yard like any good Christian would. Now, I know it's a silly example, right? But that's what we do. That's where we, we look at each other and how, we, how our marriages operate, how we parent, uh, the kinds of entertainment we participate in, the kinds of people we spend time in, and we evaluate. Well, if they think that's important, they must not be as good of a Christian as me. That's a terrible way to evaluate another person. We evaluate people on how they know what they know. If somebody doesn't seem to have a lot of biblical knowledge, well, maybe they'll measure up someday. That's ridiculous. You don't memorize your way to heaven. You trust your way to heaven. Knowing God changes how we evaluate others. A good Christian is someone who trusts Jesus to get them home. That's a good Christian. Somebody who's holding on to Jesus as hard as they can, that's somebody I want to stand next to and I hope that's what I'm like as well. That's what makes a good Christian. Someone trusting Jesus. How about this? What makes you a good Christian? We obviously, we evaluate others. How, about do we, how do we evaluate ourselves? Here's just merely, I would just want to point this out. And, and remember, it's my job to be annoying. We, evalu we evaluate others on what we see. What do we call that? Behavior. So I'm going to evaluate you on how you're behaving. And I'm going to make an assessment on the kind of person you are based on what you do or say or how you act, right? I mean, that's what we do. I'm, this is not novel. This is not new information. How do I evaluate me on what I intended? See, I evaluate me not on my behavior. I evaluate me based on where my heart was. So, well, sure, I behave that way, but you know what? I didn't want to. But we don't evaluate others that way. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt for, for days, don't we? Oh, no, no. That's not me. I was tired. I didn't get enough to eat, low blood sugar, whatever it might be. And so I kind of acted out a bit, but that's not me. But your buddy acts out, you're like, that, guy, that guy's a jerk. So I'm going to make an identity decision about a person based on their behavior, but I'm going to assess me based on the benefit of the doubt of what goes on inside of me. Why is there a difference because I've drifted from the gospel. Because I've drifted away from seeing me through the lens of I just need Jesus to get me through and drifted away from seeing you through the lens of you need Jesus to get you through and now I've created ways in which I can create a hierarchy. And that means I've drifted from the gospel when I do that and I say, you know what, I want to drift. I'm going to come back and say, you need Jesus, I need Jesus, let's get home together. Final question, and then uh, we'll close with prayer and have a, close with a song as well. What do we look for in our life to know that our life matters? How do you look at your life? How do you evaluate your own life and say, you know what, my life has significance. It, it matters. The question we have is when we drift from the gospel, if we, if we want to pull back and say, no, I want to be anchored in the good news of the gospel, then we have to confront the reality of our own hearts and say, am I content? Am I satisfied with the purposes of God's kingdom? Or 
have I decided the purposes of God's kingdom are small potatoes to me? That's a drift. When I, I have a little bit of God's stuff, but the real stuff is my life. That is my life. I've drifted from the gospel. But when I'm anchored in the gospel, there is nothing occurring. There is nothing occurring in the created universe more important than what God is doing through his body of believers. Because the creator of the universe came to die that he might have his bride, which Acts 20 says he purchased with his blood, and now he has seen fit to use his bride, the body of believers, to take the messages of the gospel to the world around him, and that's what he thinks about 24-7. And unfortunately for us, we drift from the gospel and say, well, that's, that's, that's nice, but it's kind of small potatoes for me. I've got some big stuff going on. Our biggest things here are just temporary. They might be big. We, there are many of us who are doing some big time things. That's cool. But we have to remember, they, but they only last for a little while. The stuff that is done in the kingdom of God, according to the Bible, lasts forever. And we just have to calibrate. Am I drifting from the gospel? Am I looking down on the things of, the, of God's work through his ordinary means of grace in the body of believers? The reality is the, the world never satisfies the way we would like. Drifting from the gospel changes how we see others, changes how we see God's work. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news that Jesus saves sinners like us. God, I think we are ready and willing to admit that we are pretty good at evaluating how other people are doing. Either by putting them up on a pedestal and admiring them in a way that's not the gospel, or God, we look at others and, and we judge them not measuring up. And God, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts to the good news that Jesus, you died for sinners like us, that you humbly served us, that you didn't judge, you came to offer salvation through faith. And God, we pray that you would allow us to stay anchored to the gospel, that we would see others the way you see them, and we would see the work of the kingdom of God as your gift to us. We thank you, Jesus, for saving sinners like us. God, would you open our eyes in the ways in which we can humbly serve the people around us that you would have the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as well as we close with this song?